Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situations, or needs. Also, for our listeners on Spotify, Spotify has recently changed the way that they notify you about new episodes. To make sure you're notified when a new episode of Investing Compass has been released, go into our podcast page and click on the bell icon next to the follow button. So, Shawnee, unfortunately, you've recently had a death in the family. So your beloved goldfish, Beta, has passed away. (laughs) And now, I think you had Beta for, I think it was two days, right, Mm -hmm. before this tragedy happened. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how long that is in fish years, but, like, how are you progressing in the grieving process? Yeah, I mean, firstly, it wasn't a goldfish, Mark. It was a Beta fish. But let's just say I moved pretty quickly through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and now I'm in acceptance. Okay, but (laughs) but you did not name it Beta because it was a Beta fish. No, I mean, like my first fish was called Alpha. Yes, I, I made I made fun of you for that. <laughs> yeah. um, Alpha, of course, is excess returns over a index, and that's like what I think I said the first time. That's what like a hedge fund manager would name their douchey boat, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, well, you know. I'm glad that you're you're moving on mm-hmm. and we're going to get a lot of questions. So, you know, so we don't get all these emails. I just want to ask, like, was Beta vaccinated? <laughs> yeah, n- not to my knowledge, um, but I'm pretty sure that Beta died of swimmer's bladder. Not pretty sure. Very sure. Um, like the autopsy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was because the delivery company overfed him before bringing him to us, which is really sad, but. Yeah, no, yeah. that is sad. So, so basically, he is, I guess, what I would call an indirect victim of COVID. Mm-hmm. So, I imagine if we weren't in lockdown, you would have gone and picked him up from wherever you get fish. Yeah, that is true. A victim of lockdown. But I do have a place where I get my fish. It's called Aquadesiac, and it's in Paddington. Seriously? So. <laughs> First of all, you've had two fish. So, don't act like this is the place I go get my well, fish. <laughs> I do go and I look at the fish. I go and pick them. Like, if one speaks to me, I'll bring it home. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like people that sit there and they say, I vacation in Spain. And you're like, oh, how many times have you been? Once. Once yeah. yeah. It's like, no, I think you went on one vacation to Spain. Like, <laughs> anyway. Um, okay. So, a victim of lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I might be a victim of lockdown soon. Like, I have, you know, haven't embraced lockdown to better myself in any way. You know, some people do that. Mostly mm-hmm. annoying people, but you know, I've gotten <laughs> I've gotten some exercise carrying cases of wine into my apartment and then carrying those empty bottles out to the recycling. Yeah, but I did learn one thing the other day, and you taught me this. Yeah, the red rooster line. Yeah, and you know, maybe you should explain this because we started this podcast to help people learn new things, <laughs> and this is a new thing. This is a very Sydney centric thing, but. <laughs> It is, but people people want to learn (laughs) about different places. All right. So um, the reason we were talking about the Red Rooster line is because we got a great email from a listener, Daryl, who was writing to us from what he said was beyond the latte line. And the latte line is probably the more well-known sibling of the Red Rooster line. And basically, it's a diagonal line across Sydney that separates the east and the west. And I won't go into too much detail. Um, is about- there a lot of detail? <laughs> there is. Okay. There's a study done um, by UNSW about the latte line. Okay. So <laughs> I'll send it to you. Stay tuned for I that like on studies. a future yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it separates the bulk of white collar and blue collar jobs and socioeconomic status with a neat little line across the city. Um, but the red rooster line, which I much prefer, does the same thing, but 
the line is based around Red Rooster locations. So. Okay. And Red Rooster, of course, the fast food restaurant. Yes. Yeah. And I take it you are a fan of Red Rooster because your yeah, eyes are I your mean. eyes are lighting up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. When I speak about chicken. Yeah. No, I know you're, uh, you know, KFC like fan at heart, mm-hmm. but you know, you're branching out. Yeah. I mean, bit. I just told you a fact about KFC, which you really liked. It was. Why don't you say that as well? Okay. So on Twitter, the US KFC. Yeah, the US KFC Twitter, they only follow 11 people, and it's the five Spice Girls and four guys named Herb. So, <laughs> Yeah, which, of course, are you going to give the little punchline? Why do they follow? I mean, do you want to give it, Mark? Well, what they're famous for their herbs and spices. Yeah, 11 of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, okay. Very good. Okay, let's get into what we're actually going to talk about today. So this is the second part of a three-part series, and in the first part, We talked about how to find a great company. And now we're going to move on to how do you value a company. And we need to start with a bit of a trigger warning here. So we're going to talk about math today. And we're going to talk about math in a little bit of detail because valuing a company is part art and part science. And unfortunately, that science part of it involves, as I said, a bit of math. Now, I'm not entirely certain a podcast is maybe the best way to talk about math, but we're going to give it a shot today. Yeah, we are. So let's start with the basics on how to value a company. A PE ratio or any other relative valuation technique is not valuing a company. It's trying to see if a company or a market is undervalued compared to something else. And that something else could be another company or the market in general or some historic period. We're not saying that saying that this can't help you evaluate investment opportunities, but we are saying that they're not an absolute valuation technique. And what that means is that they are just not a standalone valuation technique. Okay. Yeah. So, Shani, let's start with why valuing a company matters. So, many investors, you know, the two of us, Morningstar in general, many investors believe that there can be a difference between price and value. The price a share is trading at can deviate and sometimes widely deviate from the value of that share. The goal in valuing a company is to estimate the standalone value of the share and therefore a company. And once you have that standalone value, you can compare it to the price the share is trading for. And that comparison will tell you if it's overvalued or undervalued, or I guess fairly valued as well. Okay. So before we get into this, you know, this math that we have been uh, warning people about, we need to remind everyone where the value of a company comes from. Yeah, and we've said this before, but remember that the value in a company comes from what that company will achieve in the future. The past is only useful in so much as it gives you an indication into what's going to happen. And the art of valuing a company is the art of estimating what will happen in the future. The science is a math in a discounted cash flow model. So why don't we start with the math to get it out of the way? And that's all you, Mark. Okay, okay. (laughs) Okay. So a discounted cash flow model is exactly what it says in the name. So let's start with the cash flow. The value of a company is the cash flows that are generated in the future. Those cash flows are what is left over from selling goods and services and then subtracting the cost to produce those goods and services. That cash flow is what's left for the owners of the company. As a shareholder, that's you. So Those cash flows, they can be returned to you in dividends or buybacks, or they can be reinvested in the company to try and make it grow. A discounted cash flow model starts with estimates of those cash flows, and we'll get into how to estimate those cash flows, but let's keep marching towards the model right now. So, Shani, 
Tell us about the discounted part of this. Okay. So a key premise in investing is that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. Now, anybody that has listened to this podcast knows that I hate birds, but a saying that comes to mind that is related to this concept, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What you have now is worth more than what you may have in the future. So if I had a dollar today and I can earn 2% interest in a year, it means that I'll have a dollar and two cents in the future. The opposite holds true as well. So a dollar and two cents in the future is worth worth a dollar today. The difference between the two numbers is the interest rate you receive. When we estimate these cash flows out in the future, we need to discount them back to present day. Now, it should be obvious that the discount rate is really important. Mark, why don't you talk through the discount rate? Okay. Yeah. Well, the discount rate, of course, is complicated, but it's also <laughs> critical to the value of the company. So in the example that Shani gave, she used a 2% rate. That $1 is worth $1.02 in the future because of that interest rate at 2%. The discount rate is going to have a huge impact on the value of those future cash flows. There are lots of discount rates that we can use. Morningstar, we use the weighted average cost of capital. So that's the amount that it costs a company to raise capital. That capital is raised through a combination of equity and debt. Cost of debt is the interest rate the company pays on bonds. And then the complicated part, it's that equity cost of capital. And at Morningstar, we have a range of costs of equities that we use based on how uncertain we are about those future cash flows. But we're going to get back to that. And we're obviously getting into some complex things here. Why don't we take a step back and think about what we're trying to do? We're estimating the future cash flows generated by a company. We are predicting the future, and the future, of course, is unknowable. But what if it wasn't? What if we knew exactly what was going to happen in the future? Well, then the discount rate should be less. It should be less because it's knowable. If we think about investing, we can think about bonds. A bond is a contractual agreement to pay out a certain amount. A bond issuer has to pay back a bond unless, of course, they go out of business. And the interest rate that an investor requires is based on the assessment of the ability of the bond issuer to pay back the bond. In other words, if there is no doubt that the bond payer will pay them back, there is no chance they will go out of business, then that interest rate is risk-free because there is no risk that you won't get paid. But investing in a share is not risk-free. The future cash flows that are generated by a company are not a contract. They're based on all sorts of things. The way the company operates, the overall economy, consumer tastes, countless and infinite different things. In other words, these cash flows are not risk-free. If we're looking at the discount rate for a company, we need to start with the risk-free rate. We know that we know that the discount rate has to be more than the risk-free rate because there is more risk. That additional risk is called the equity risk premium. We need to add something to the risk-free rate. Yeah, so we have our way of coming up with discount rates at Morningstar. So our analysts generally state those rates in their research reports. But once again, we want you to understand this concept. The discount rate is higher than the risk-free rate. It should be much higher because an uncertain future is very different than a predictable future. But mathematically, we should all understand this. The higher the discount rate, the less those future cash flows are worth. The higher the discount rate, the less the company is worth. And this is a different episode completely, but that means that the lower interest rates are, the lower that risk-free rate is, the more the company is worth because it's discounted less. So that is why low interest rates mean shares are worth more. We need to make one last point on discount rates that we alluded to earlier. The estimated future cash flow generated by a company have different levels of uncertainty. Some companies are riskier than others. We won't spend too much time on this, but let's take two vastly different companies to make this point. 
We don't know how much Coca-Cola is going to make next year, but I can state a couple of things with certainty. Coke isn't going to double its sales next year. Their sales next year also aren't going to fall by half. They aren't going to go out of business. They are a mature company that is in good financial shape. If we take a mining company in WA that has some land that may have some lithium in it and may not have lithium in it, they have a bit of money and no sales and they need to dig something up in the next year to sell or they will run out of money. Their cash flows may be zero and they may go out of business or they might strike the mother load and make a fortune. The point is that their cash flows are more uncertain, so they need a bigger discount rate. Cash flow rates should defer based on the risk in the company. Okay, so I feel like we need to take a bit of a breather here. So we've been through a lot. So let's come up with a couple mid-episode lessons. So the value of a company is based on the future cash flows that the company generates. The cash flows in the future are worth less than cash flows today. That means we need to discount those cash flows. Those cash flows are uncertain, so that discount rate needs to be more than a risk-free discount rate. That uncertainty varies by how risky the company is. So what do you think, Shani? Did I get everything? Yeah, I think you got it, mate. Um, We are missing a couple of key elements here, though. How do we come up with the two things that we need to figure out how to value a share? So why don't you start with a discount rate? Okay. So as we said before, one discount rate that is used is the weighted average cost of capital. And once again, that represents the cost that a company has to pay for capital or money they raise to invest in a business. There are two ways you can raise capital as a company. You can borrow it by getting a loan from a bank or by issuing bonds, or you can raise equity capital, which is selling ownership stakes in the company in exchange for cash. Selling shares to the public is one way of raising equity capital. Other ways include private sales like venture capital. That weighted average cost of capital has to include the cost of equity and the cost of debt. Cost of debt is pretty easy to calculate because it's observable in the market. If the company has debt, you can see the interest rate the bonds are trading for. Cost of equity is a little more complex, and we'll get into that in a bit. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love Premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. First, let's talk about what the theory is behind the cost of capital. The cost of capital should reflect two things. It should include the risk of the company and it should include future risks of inflation. Let's start with the risk of the company. If Coke and the speculative miner went out and borrowed money, they would have vastly different interest rates. Anyone lending them money would assess the likelihood of each company paying them back and set the interest rate accordingly. So right away, the risk of the company would be captured. The same thing would occur with raising equity capital. If they were selling shares publicly or privately, the ownership stake would be priced very differently. The next thing that should be included in this discount rate is inflation. So inflation is, of course, a concern because you're buying a share for the future cash flows generated by the company. High inflation means those cash flows are worth less because future dollars are worth less. Inflation expectations will be captured within the cost of debt. 
Bondholders are very concerned with inflation, so when they think inflation is going to be higher, they will demand higher interest rates. Incidentally, this is why worries about inflation impact the price of stocks. The discount rate goes up, meaning future cash flows are worth less. Calculating the cost of equity is a little trickier. There is a complicated formula called the capital asset pricing model that some investors use. At Morningstar, we use a range between 7.5% and 13.5% based on our assessment of the riskiness of the company. Coke would have a lower rate. The lithium miner would have a higher rate. And the other thing you can do is you can add an equity risk premium to the risk-free rate. This is not as complicated as it sounds. As we said before, the risk-free rate is the U.S. Treasury bond yield. It is risk-free since there's no risk that you won't get paid back. An equity risk premium is something that you add to that to reflect the increased riskiness of equities. That rate can vary, but as an individual investor, it should be at least the amount that you would expect from a return from investing in shares. If you're expecting returns of 10% a year from equities, then you can use that as your discount rate. Just make sure that there's a meaningful difference between that and the risk-free rate. Okay, Mark. Hopefully that gives a sense of the discount rate. Let's move on to these cash flows that need to be discounted. How do you come up with those? Okay. Well, estimating cash flows is hard, but let's take a look at what we're actually trying to accomplish here. First of all, we're trying to estimate future free cash flow. So free cash flow is the amount of cash that is available to pay both creditors, so those are bondholders, and shareholders. We are adjusting earnings for non-cash charges like depreciation and amortization. At a high level, we want to take cash flow from operating activities plus interest expenses and then subtract capital expenditures. So let's break that down. Operating activities are what the company does to make money. So Coke's operating activity is selling soda. Every once in a while, Coke may make a profit from selling a building, but that is a non-operating activity. And you can find this in the financial statements. So you add an interest expense because you're trying to calculate the cash available for creditors and shareholders. And then you take out capital expenditures because those are ad hoc investments by the company. And that is how we calculate free cash flow. The question is how we estimate it. We can take the growth rate from the past and project it to the future. That is a more simplistic approach, but we can try to figure out the sales the company will generate in the future and then try to figure out the cash flow margin based on our read of the industry. We can look at analyst reports like ours and see if we agree with their estimates. All of these choices are available, but no matter what you want to do, you need to understand the concept. Okay, so let's take an example from one of our research reports. And we are going to take a couple quotes that uh, from the research re- report that your mate, Angus, wrote on InvoCare. <laughs> yeah, Angus recently had a baby named Matilda. And I'm at the stage now where my friends are having uh, babies and becoming parents. It's all very strange. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Welcome to my world. But uh, okay, so InvoCare. I guess we're coming full circle here, right? So Angus yeah, had a baby. Funeral home operator. <laughs> InvoCare operates... Funeral home. So yeah, the circle of life. Um, so, okay. I pulled a couple lines out of the InvoCare research report. And Angus says the following. He says, we estimate sales to grow at 8% CAGR. Um, so that's the compounded annual growth rate over the next five years. Underpinned by recovery from 2020 lows, the company continues raising prices by around 3% per year, low single-digit growth in the number of deaths per year. 
Later, he says, we forecast Invocare to lift group EBIT margins to around 20% by fiscal 2025, from lows of 12% in fiscal 2020, which we expect to be a trough earnings year. Company is nearing the tail end of its major $200 million transformation project, Protect and Grow, which includes cost-cutting initiatives. Then a little later in the report, he says, our discounted cash flow model uses a 7.2% weighted average cost of capital. All right. So we need to translate this, right, from analyst speak into normal people speak. Yeah, I don't think that was English. <laughs> no, no, I know. He should he should be writing this research report like he's writing it to Matilda. Yeah, good you know, idea. Presumably can't read at this point, but you know, any day now, <laughs> I don't right? Know. Don't really have many interactions with children, maybe. I yeah, mean. <laughs> I don't know what age children do anything, yeah. so... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's translate what Angus said. So he said he thinks sales are going to grow 8% over the next five years. That increase in revenue, so those sales, is partially attributable to low single-digit growth in deaths and partially attributable to the fact that Invocare is raising prices. And those are the two major inputs into revenue, the volume of sales and how much you charge. So that takes care of top-line growth. Next, Angus is talking about margin. He is saying EBIT margin, so remember earnings before interest and taxes, and EBIT margin is a bit different than free cash flow, which is what we want. But earnings before interest and taxes includes non-cash charges such as depreciation and amortization. So if you're creating a model yourself, you would add those back in. And you could look at the financial statements and see what they historically have been. And those figures probably won't change unless the company makes a major investment in a new asset that, of course, needs to be depreciated and would increase that depreciation. So in that case, you would read through management commentary to see if they had anything planned in the future. Yeah, so Angus is saying that this margin is going to grow from lows of 12% to 20% between 2020 and 2025, and that is all very positive for shareholders. Angus explains why as well. He said that Invocare is nearing the end of a $200 million transformation program called Protect and Grow, which includes cost-cutting initiatives. Earlier, we talked about margin and said that there are two ways to grow it. A company can charge more or a company can produce goods and services for cheaper. This cost-cutting program was an investment by Invocare to try and save money in the future, which increases margin and means that more of every dollar in sales is available to shareholders. Okay, then the last piece of the puzzle is the discount rate. So Angus says that he's using a 7.2% weighted average cost of capital. That is the rate that he will use to discount those future cash flows back to the present day. And once again, he's discounting them because a dollar in the future is worth less than a dollar today. Or in your case, Shani, the bird in the hands and the bird in the tree. <laughs> this is an example of how you can use our analyst reports to help you create your own model if you're doing that. Obviously, not everyone is going to go through that effort, but it also shows how understanding how to value a share can help you read an analyst report and use it to come to your own conclusions. Okay, Shani, we're almost there. Mm -hmm. But we do need to answer an obvious question that listeners may have. So Angus talked about what's going to happen between now and 2025. What happens after that? So for this, we need to think about what you are getting when you invest in a share. So unlike a bond that has a set maturity date or a time when the bond no longer exists and you get your money back, a company can last forever. So as a legal structure, there's no end date for a company. Unless, of course, it goes bankrupt or it's bought by another company, there will be a value forever. 
So creating a discounted cash flow model is hard because you have to predict future cash flows way out into the future. And the further out that you go, the harder this becomes. So with a lot of work, it seems reasonable that you can try and predict what's going to happen in two years. But it's pretty impossible to do that 15 years from now. So most analysts will only estimate out free cash flow for five or 10 years because they know beyond that is less likely that they'll be able to accurately do it. So Angus went out five years. But if you leave the model at that, you were leaving a lot of value on the table. If Invocare does well for the next five years, the shares will not be worthless. They'll have a lot of value. So the way you handle these future periods is to calculate a terminal value using an assumed long-term growth rate. For instance, you could go back and look at the historic growth rate of the economy and just assign that as a number by assuming the company will grow at the same amount as the overall economy. You could add a couple percentage points to that long-term economic growth rate if you think the company will grow faster than the economy. Either way, you need to account for this value. And remember, mathematically, the further you go out into the future, the less that cash flow matters to the value of the company. And that's because you're discounting each and every year by that discount rate that you use. For instance, if a company is going to have a free cash flow of $100 next year and $100 a year after, and your discount rate was 10%, the first $100 would have a present value of $90.91, and that second $100 will have a value of $82.64 because you are discounting it by 10% for another year. Okay, so we mentioned the M word, and we should talk a bit about this. And, you know, by the M word, of course, I mean math, not, you know, Mark. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully that's not described as the M word. Um, so, yeah, you would build these models in Excel, and you would take those cash flows, and the Excel formula is you would divide that cash flow by one plus the discount rate raised by the number of years out into the future. But, you know, please remember, if Excel formulas and what I just said makes you anxious, this is not something you need to do. What you should understand is the concept of why we care about cash flows as investors, why these cash flows need to be discounted, and what are the considerations that go into a discount rate. We're almost there, but there is one step. If you build out a model in Excel and you estimate cash flows, determine a discount rate and calculate the terminal value, you will come up with a number. The math of the science of valuing shares will give you a very precise number. We need to make a couple of adjustments to this number. We need to remove any debt that the company has, so subtract the debt which you can find on the balance sheet from this figure. Then you need to add back in the cash the company has on the balance sheet because this model is only talking about the future and doesn't account for what the company has today. All right, you've done it. So you have valued <laughs> a company. So all you need to do now is divide that number by the total number of shares outstanding to figure out a per share value. That is another important consideration for all investors, whether you build these models yourself or you just want to understand how this works. The number of shares outstanding matters. When a company issues more shares, there's less value per shareholder. You would divide what the company is worth by that larger amount of shares. The company buys back shares and there are less shares, the company is worth more on a per share basis. If you've gone through all this work, you're going to get a per share value of the company. For instance, Angus has come up with a value of $15.30 for InvoCare, and that's a very precise figure. This precision tends to throw people off, and in reality, there is no answer. This figure of $15.30 is an estimate. A lot of work and thinking went into this estimate, but it's still an estimate, a prediction. None of us know what the future holds, and as investors, it would be silly of us to treat this precise figure as the sign that we should buy InvoCare if it's trading for $15.29 because we're getting it for one cent less than it's worth. This is where one of the most important concepts in investing comes in, the margin of safety. Mark, why don't you walk us through that? 
Sure. So the margin <laughs> of safety was famously introduced by Ben Graham in his book, The Intelligent Investor. So Ben Graham also has one of the most famous quotes in investing about the margin of safety. So he says, confronted with a challenge to distill the secret of sound investment into three words, we venture the motto, margin of safety. So he is acknowledging that you've come up with a general estimate to what a company is worth. But as investors, we need to account for all of the unknown in the future. And we do this by discounting this per share value that was calculated to account for everything that's unknowable. So let's say you want to take a 50% margin of safety. You would simply take that per share estimate and reduce it by half. What you're essentially saying here is that your best guess is that Invocare is worth $15.30, but you have the intellectual humility to know that answer could be wrong. Anything could happen in the future. So let me throw out this outlandish scenario. So let's say the government one day comes out and says that you can't have funerals with more than 10 people. And a lot of Invocare's revenue dries up. And we need a reason, right? So why can you only have a funeral for 10 people? Once again, wild scenario. Maybe somebody ate a bat and now there's a worldwide <laughs> pandemic and people can't gather. Uh, before Mark goes too far off the rails here, let's get back to the margin of safety. The margin of safety protects you from the unknown. And that unknown could be, of course, a positive. Maybe your cash flows are too low, but all that upside is available to you as an investor. How much of a margin of safety should you take? That is up to you, but a key input should be the type of company you are looking at. We used an example earlier where we were comparing Coke to some speculative lithium miner, and we said that the discount rate you use for Coke is probably going to be lower because it's less risky. That also means that most investors would be more comfortable using a lower margin of safety for a company like Coke, where their future cash flows are more certain. At Morningstar, the margin of safety that we like to use goes into our star ratings and range from 20% for the companies that we deem low risk to 75% for the riskiest companies. So we've been through a lot today, mm -hmm. but let's end this with how you should use all this information as an investor. So some people may want to give a discounted cash flow model a shot. If that is you, then go for it. Once you've created that model, you can do some interesting things that will teach you a lot as an investor. You can see the impact of changing different inputs. So lower the discount rate and see how the value of the company goes up. It goes up because you're discounting cash flows by less the lower discount means they are worth more. This will show you how falling interest rates increase the value of shares. Change around the growth rate in the free cash flow. This will show you why changes in how fast an investor thinks a company will grow can have large impacts on the value they assign to those shares. That is why a growth company often falls dramatically if they forecast growth that is lower than expectation, even if that absolute rate of growth is still pretty good. Many people will listen to this and say it's crazy to put all this work in and wouldn't know where to get started. And this is also okay. As we said at the beginning, there are many ways to be a successful investor. If these concepts confuse you, that doesn't mean investing isn't right for you. Understanding these key concepts will allow you to be more a more informed consumer of the investment guidance that you're getting from other people. When your mate is at a barbecue telling you about this great lithium miner, you can ask them if they're using a higher discount rate or bigger margin of safety to account for the risk. You can ask if this lithium miner has a competitive advantage. That's right, Chani. We aren't going to dumb down these concepts on Investing Compass to make people think that everything in life is easy. 
We're going to provide information because everyone can understand the high-level concepts we talked about. We hope we did this in an approachable way that helps investors. But remember that half of life is just showing up and half of investing is just getting started. Think about some of the concepts we talked about today and the next time you're reading about an investment, whether it's in one of our analyst reports or something in the newspaper, hopefully it will make more sense. Think about what makes a company great and have a sustainable competitive advantage. Think about why cash flows matter and why discount rates matter. Think about the margin of safety. Okay. So next time we will do part three in our trilogy and talk about how to find the right share for you. Our trilogy. Okay. Yeah. Well, we should start off then next time okay. thinking about our favorite trilogy, right? We try to do <laughs> okay. we try to do favorite sequel. Mm-hmm. So now we'll have to think about trilogy. All right. I'll have a think about it. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you guys very much for joining. We really appreciate it. As always, we would love any comments or ratings. We would love you to share this with your friends and family. And finally, of course, my email address is in the episode notes. So send suggestions, send comments, send feedback on how bad Shawnee's jokes are. Anything (laughs) that you want. But thank you guys very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.